The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Good Night Maryland Radio with your host, Nina Bosky. It's been more than 50 years since the tragic death of one of Hollywood's biggest stars at the time and in history, Marilyn Monroe. Nina seeks to uncover the life and death of this legendary star as it coincides with the pre-production of the feature film, Good Night, Marilyn. You'll get a chance to question, explore, and discover the secrets surrounding what really happened that fateful night back in 1962. Let's start the conversation. Here is the host of Good Night, Marilyn Radio, Nina Bosky. I received a phone call at approximately 3.45 a.m. from the doctor who told me that Marilyn Monroe had died from an overdose of sleeping pills. The house was relatively dark. I walked up to the house, entered the door, and I was shown into this bedroom. Marilyn was laying on the bed, face down. She was nude. A sheet was over the body. Numerous bottles were on the nightstand next to the bed. I was shown an empty bottle which two or three days before the prescription had been filled with Negatol. I was told that Marilyn Monroe had apparently swallowed all of the remaining pills in that bottle. There was no uh, evidence of a person dying in this fashion. There was no uh, vomit or regurgitation in the room, none in the bathroom. Uh, There was not a glass of water sitting by the bed. It was obvious from the reaction of everybody that I talked to and that other people talked to that the fix was in. The matter was simply a closed book in their minds. They did not want to hear any facts that did not support the conclusion that had already been announced to the press. I believe Marilyn Monroe was murdered. Hi, everyone. I'm Nina Bosky for Goodnight Marilyn Radio. That was Jack Clemens, uh, the sergeant first on the scene as a police officer, the morning that Marilyn Monroe was found, uh, passed away in her bedroom. So welcome to the show as we explore the investigation, the life, and the movie all surrounding Miss Monroe herself. We have some shout-outs today. Paul in Perth, Australia. Joe in Melbourne, Wow, so we've got a couple people from uh, Australia today. Mike in Tacoma, Washington. Cecilia in San Jose, California. Bernice in Del Monte, California. Peter from Denmark. Debbie from Allensville, Kentucky. Tony from St. Paul, Minnesota. Natalie from Palm Beach, Florida. And Bjorn from Motherwell, Scotland. Hello, Goodnight Maryland fans. As you know, we are growing around the world each and every day, and it's because of you and this story that we're shedding some great light on this mystery that has been haunting us for nearly 53 years. And I just want to say thank you because we have quadrupled in our numbers from May to through June. And uh, thank you so much for listening and paying attention because this is about a person. This is not uh, some fictional character. We are talking about a real-life person that passed away and that 
may need some vindication because 53 years ago, she passed nearly 53 years ago, and today we're still talking about it. And I really think the reason why we're talking about it is because we all know, regardless of what we think happened to her, if we you know, disagree on the theories and we disagree on the facts, but there's something inside of us that goes, you know what, there's just something about this that isn't right. As I say, there's a lie in the space. The question is, what is the lie? So we are in season two. Marilyn, the last day, so many people surrounding, you know, Marilyn's last day of her life. It becomes a little complicated. It really does. And, uh, you know, they're all connected somehow. But the question is, how? So we're going to find out today on Goodnight Marilyn Radio as we discuss some of those that were involved in the events of August 5th and, in this case, August 4th, as we get into more of the theories of what happened the night she died. We have a great lineup. The whole uh, panel is back. Uh, Joining us is licensed mental health counselor and best-selling author, Gary Vitaco Robles, icon, the lifetimes and films of Marilyn Monroe, volumes one and two. And I just have to say, during the week, this guy will send me stuff that he just researched, and, and, and all of them research, and he'll send me, oh, I've got this inf- information, and I don't know where he finds it, where, where they all find it, but they do. And uh, I think that's important as we start to look at these theories, what we can prove versus what we can't. And uh, two of the other uh, experts that do this just as well is Mary Jane uh, from Immortal Maryland. She's back with us today after vacation. And Leslie Kaspirowitz, who was with us last week. So before we get started, though, I have uh, we have a lot to cover. I'd like to thank Voice America Radio Network's Randall Libero, our executive producer, Mike Surgit, our engineer, Jenna Weissman, our talent booker, and also Haley Riles, who has, helps us with a lot of the video and the sound clips and social media, as well as Jennifer, our official social media person. Could not do this without uh, any of you. So thank you, thank you. We also have a fun festive event coming up on August 4th as we we will be celebrating Marilyn's life at the Formosa Cafe, a live radio show event. It'll be a special radio show from 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Please, Marilyn fans, if you're here in Los Angeles, come out. Um, It's for you. It's for Marilyn celebrating her life as it kicks off the week of 53 years since Marilyn has passed. So, uh, we will be talking about old Hollywood, the golden age of uh, Hollywood. We'll have some surprise guests. And uh, I want to hear from you. If you're there at the Formosa, maybe you can give us a, your favorite Maryland moment. Also want to just do a shout out to Eliza Jordan, LAWomantours.com, LAWomantours.com. For you Maryland fans that want to take the tour August 9th at 1230 is check-in and go to LAWomantours.com and she will be doing a tour all around Los Angeles so you can take uh, a tour of where Marilyn's uh, hangouts were. Visit her Brentwood house as well as some of her favorite haunts. So Eliza Jordan, LAWomantours.com. So, okay, so let's get this conversation going. As I said, we have a lot to cover. This week's topic, the ambulance theory. I decided to use Jay Margolis's book, The Murder of Marilyn Monroe, Case Closed. 
mainly to reference, not because it's necessarily accurate, but he uses such strong conclusions and uh, statements in his book, it makes it easy for us to use this as a context and a basis for the counterpoint discussion today. But, you know, as I reread some of the areas of his book this time, I found his findings useful in one way because we can go back and check fact because he does give references to some of his theories. However, and I say however, like most people writing a book or creating a documentary, they go into it with a point of view and they reiterate information out to the mainstream media and then they label it as fact when it has clearly, clearly not been identified as fact. You know, I don't mind if somebody writes a book and they say, this is my theory, this is what I think, right? But even the title, you know, The Murder of Marilyn Monroe, Case Closed, as if he solved it. And maybe in his own mind he has. But, and there's, I'm not saying that there isn't some really good information out there that we can use. But some of his statements are very bold, And you, the reader, come away thinking that it is true, especially if you don't know a lot of the the behind-the-scenes and all the people and the places. It really does sound like it's true, you know? And portions of it may be true. So we're going to embark on some great areas today in the story. The night Marilyn died. But I want to point out that this is truly a theory. I'm not saying it's true. I don't know. You don't know. None of us really know. We weren't there that day. However... I do know that we have a credible credible panel of experts that can shed some light on these theories, but here's my position. I think in order to get to the truth, we all have to be able to look for the fact in some of someone's theory. Just because someone is telling us something doesn't mean it's the truth, but it doesn't mean that it's not. And there may be shades of gray in their story. So I want us to keep an open mind and try to withhold judgment and be open as if you were a detective yourself. So ask yourself some difficult questions. Is this plausible? Given what we know, could this be true or is it an outlandish rumor? All right, panel, you're back. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Hi, Nina. Hi, Nina. Well, You know, you heard Jack Clemens' recount at the beginning of the radio broadcast. What, if anything, makes sense to you, given that he lost a lot of credibility due to his fraudulent fraudulent behavior? Does this mean that everything he says is a lie? I'll start with you, Leslie. Um, Well, it doesn't necessarily mean everything he says is a lie. Um, But what you have to remember about Clemens is he's in the house for... 15 or 20 minutes, and everything that he's picking up is a matter of opinion. And um, I was just reading an excellent article today on the difference between opinion and fact. Um, And he is going in and he's saying, this is the feeling I got from the room. This is kind of what I thought was going on in the room. None of that is fact. He can say what he saw in the room, but then he's interpreting what he saw in the room in his own way to fit his own beliefs. And that's what I get out of Clemens' statements. All right. All right. How about you, Mary Jane? Well, in uh, regards to the clip that was just played, I mean, I, again, of course, agree with Leslie. Um, Things that he said, he kind of said things that he didn't quite have the qualifications to say, like remarking on the fact that there was no vomit present. Well, any coroner or pathologist will tell you that overdoses don't always vomit. It's not standard. So Clemens didn't 
really have the knowledge to back up a statement like that, but because he was the first one there, people automatically think, oh, well, there must be something fishy about this. Um, his statement about there not being any water in the, gr- in the room, there's a water glass right next to her bed. Um, however, his statement about how he felt that it was investigated as a closed book and they didn't want to hear evidence other than their preconceived conclusion, I, I do agree with that statement. Hey, Mary Jane, let me ask you a question because it's been brought up to me. The 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 picture that you see um, with the water glass lying next to her bed, is that the official picture? That is, yes, that was released by the police department. Okay, I just wanted to make sure because uh, somebody had asked me that and I was like, okay, I'm not quite sure. Uh, yeah, Gary, I'm, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say something very interesting about that water glass is it matches a set of um, glasses that she bought in Mexico that are now owned by a private collector, and they were a set of 12, and he has 11, because that one glass that was next to her bed was taken into evidence, and uh, presumably the police still have it. All right, good point. Uh, Gary, your thoughts? Uh, I hear Clemens speaking um, with a sense of authority, um, but yet he doesn't provide any hard evidence to support his claim of the, of the homicide. And as a first responder who was not a homicide detective, um, I would think that the face value of the death scene actually does suggest an overdose, at least at that early point of the investigation. No timeline had been established. So he comes into a, a, a room where a woman is deceased on the bed in a locked room with an empty vial of meds. Her doctor is there saying that the vial had contained 50 pills. And the bedroom is attached to a bathroom with access to wa- water. So I would think that that would be an initial impression. All right. And, and, and in subsequent years, he, he never submitted any uh, documented report that he saw this um, otherwise. He waited quite a long time before he disclosed that. Yeah, which then again, you know, goes back to why do people wait these years before they come back with these these uh, theories and these uh, these you know uh, statements? And again, you lose the credibility if you're not saying it the day after or, or during that time. And then the question is, is you know, um, with the other police officers as well, you know, what their statements, et cetera, were. Because when you read uh, Jay's book, you know, it goes into possibilities of why um, the police weren't talking. So, but we're not, that's that's a different show. We're talking about the ambulance theory. We actually have somebody on the air that wants to ask a question. Hi, how are you? Uh, welcome to Goodnight, Maryland. Hello? Hi, is this for me? Yeah, hey, uh, who's, who's on the air with us? Oh, this is Phil. Oh, hi, Phil. How are you? Uh, you have a question or a comment? Well, um, I'm an ex-police uh, officer, and um, I was uh, curious as to um, the actions of the, the police uh, at the scene when it came to the doctors present. Um, I, was under the influ- I was under the impression that, um, uh, that, that they had come to perhaps a preconceived notion as to what was going on based upon the authority of the doctors. Uh, Many times uh, police officers will rely upon the statements of a doctor when a doctor is present at the time of death. That wasn't the case here, but that may have been what was going through their minds 
in that perhaps um, uh, they were receiving this uh, from uh, Engelberg or someone who's saying, yes, it was suicide. They didn't really bother to go too in-depth at that point. Yeah, you know, Phil, you make a very good point because Skip McComer, our, um, uh, who is uh, one of our experts investigators on the uh, the investigation team, who's ex-homicide uh, LAPD, he said in today's day and age, um, somebody just as, as high profile, it would have been sealed off from the very, very beginning, and they would have automatically gone into investigation mode. You wouldn't just take it as a, a suicide. And so I think that's a good point. Uh, does anybody uh, the panel want to jump in here? Uh, Gary, you have any comments on that? Well, I'm not sure that they um, didn't investigate those things. I mean, there, there might have been investigation done that we're not aware of because we've never had access to um, many of the documents in the file. You know, they, they did see a broken window. They had the testimony of the witnesses present. Um, I'm not so sure how much they did investigate those matters. Yeah, the only thing is, is that um, if it were today, it would have been sealed off. Um, you wouldn't have all those people walking in and out of that, um, just assuming that it was a suicide, just due to the fact that she's a high-profile celebrity. Uh, Mary Jane or Leslie, you want to add to this comment? I think I think they did walk into the room and immediately make the assumption that it was a suicide. Um, you've got a little note from the police uh, they, where they had written Barb's overdose, so they're already assuming cause of death. Um, from the moment they walked into the room before the autopsy. Um, they're being told by her psychiatrist, who would be a person who would have knowledge of her, you know, mental uh, well-being, that it's a suicide by her doctor. Um, and you've also got Engelberg, who says that the, it was his idea to call the police, where in this situation he normally would just simply call the coroner and have the body taken. And then he decides, well, maybe we better call the police. So it's hard to say, uh, you're looking back in 1962, different time, different era. Um, there's, there's been other, you know, high profile deaths before Maryland, but I think Maryland's was a really unusual case. I mean, I don't think anybody really knew how to approach it from the moment that it started as far as the investigation. But I do agree that they walked into that room and approached the case uh, with the assumption that it was a suicide. All right, Phil, thank you for the call. We have to take a a quick break. We'll be back. We'll continue the conversation. We are in season two, the last day of Maryland's life. You're listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio, and we'll be back in just a moment. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Mad Genius Radio presents Marilyn. For those of us who can't get enough of Marilyn Monroe, especially her iconic musical performances, Mad Genius Radio has expertly curated a genre of hundreds of tracks performed by Marilyn and friends. It is the quintessential collection of music for a journey of glamour, grace, and allure. Listen for free only on Mad Genius Radio. Available in the App Store, Google Play, and desktop at madgeniusradio.com. News. 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 News.
Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio. Help us explore the mystery that is and was Marilyn Monroe. Call into our program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to MarilynLiveTalk at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. We are talking about the ambulance theory, our panel Mary Jane Gray, Leslie Kaspirowitz, and Gary Vitaco Robles. Uh, Leslie, you had a point you wanted to bring out about uh, Jack Clemens, which I thought was really good. So, uh, what was your point about that? Yeah, um, and, and you, we talked about how Jack Clemens initially says there's no water glass in the room. And then, of course, we have the photograph that shows that there was a water glass right next to the bed. Um, and Clemens, um, after that comes out, decides to go back and say, oh, we've searched the room for a water glass. It wasn't there. It shows up later in the photos, and it must have been planted there. So he claims that he's got Engelberg and Greenson and himself searching the room looking for a water glass because at this point in time, that's apparently the most important thing they could be doing. (laughs) And then uh, that it later shows up. So this to me is another situation where you're seeing something that doesn't fit your version of events and you're backpedaling and trying to fit it into your story. That's what I get from Clemens on that. So I just wanted to put that out there in case anyone's wondering about that. Yeah, that's an interesting point. So um, I just want to also bring up one one thing before we get started about this, because I, 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 you guys can tell me if this is true or not based on the fact of uh, this is in uh, Jay Margolis's book, but I thought it was interesting. In, uh, in uh, Thomas Noguchi's book, uh, Corner to the Stars, he says that Marilyn's alleged ingestion of 64 pills, an accidental overdose of that magnitude, was extremely unlikely from my forensic experience with suicide victims, I believe the sheer number of pills Monroe ingested was too many to swallow accidentally. Um, Mary Jane, I know you've done a lot of research in regards to the technicality of, uh, of this. What are your comments about that? Well, I don't see anything unusual about his statement by saying, you know, the number of pills, if they were ingested by her, you don't do that accidentally. You don't take 50 or 60 pills accidentally. Um, there's a lot of people will say that they think, you know, she took a couple of pills earlier in the day and then an hour later took some more, or it's been posited that she took a couple of pills to go to sleep, woke up a little bit, didn't remember that she had taken some and took some more. That's reasonable for 10 or 12, maybe I'll even give you 15, but not 40 to 60 pills. So essentially what Noguchi is saying is, that many pills is not an accidental overdose. All right. So when you start looking at that, and I think almost every forensic pathologist says this, it becomes a little fishy in terms of if she was ingesting these pills, how in the world, without becoming unconscious, you know, um, could she digest all of those pills? Uh, Mary Jane, you also wanted to uh, to comment uh, a little bit on this as well in terms of uh, the ambulance theory and Jack Clemens. So you had some some interesting quotes as well. Oh, yes. Um, so the ambulance theory is uh, uh, James Hall, who claimed to be 
a ambulance driver with the Schaefer Ambulance Company, uh, came out in 1982 and said that he and his partner, Murray Leibovitz, had been called to Marilyn's house the night she died. Um, then he gets a little more outlandish and says that he had begun resuscitation on her and her color came back and she was breathing. And then he says that Dr. Greenson comes in, um, pulls a needle out of his bag and injects her in the heart and kills her, which on the surface it sounds patently absurd, but it's, it's a theory that a lot of people have run with. Um, I think the things that really bring his, his uh, claims into question are the transcripts of his conversation with the assistant DA in the 1982 investigation where he flat out says, you know, why are, why are you coming forward now? And he flat out says, I'm doing it for money. He says, um, I'm not doing this as a good Samaritan. Quite frankly, on a financial basis, it would require expense money. The assistant DA says, what kind of expense money? And James Hall says, I'm starving to death and my family is too. That's the only reason we've been doing this. Okay. So, so, um, and uh, I want to, I want to back up the truck here. Um, keep that thought for just a moment. Leslie, back up the truck in regards to who is James Hall? Who did he work for? And let's let, cause this is totally tied into the ambulance and, and what ambulance uh, company did he work for? Uh, James Hall would have been an ambulance driver for the Schaefer Ambulance Company, um, and his uh, partner is uh, was a man named Murray Leibovitz, who occasionally would shorten the name to Lieb, um, so that doesn't that name will show up in two different ways based on who you're talking to uh, and the version of the story. Um, so Hall uh, claims that he was on duty that night, got the call, and arrived at Marilyn's house when she was still alive. Um, it's uh, it's hard. If you look back at the timeline, his story is so easy to debunk, even if you take away all of the medical evidence that disproves what he says happened. Um, we know now from the medical evidence that she had passed away by 9 o'clock and that her last phone call was at 8.30. So all of this is meant to have happened within that half-hour period, and yet um, he doesn't place it anywhere near that timeline. So, you know, his story just falls apart very quickly under any kind of scrutiny. And I think we can go into the medical evidence um, against him in terms of the needle in the ribs. He claims to have intubated Marilyn. There would have been evidence of that. And he also states that there were bruises on the body that weren't found on autopsy. Um, He claims to have bruised the body himself. He says when he pulled her off the bed, he made fingerprints on her arms and that her bottom hit the ground and that bruised as well. So you have a whole list of things that he said that just don't match up to the autopsy. Yeah, let me ask you, and also just in regards to that, uh, and you guys might know this, he, they also talk about these polygraphs that he took. What, what polygraphs? I've never seen anything about that. Um, Do yeah, you guys he, know what I'm talking about in terms of that? Took several polygraphs. Sorry, yeah, and I was... Yeah, and, so and I, I believe was, yeah. they were they were they were conducted by the Globe magazine, which played him paid him forty thousand dollars for his story, and that was published in November of nineteen eighty two. But you know, we're not talking about the investigative journalism of like the Washington Post and the New York Times. Um, Mr. Hall sold his story to the Globe and to Hustler, and these are tabloid and 
pornographic magazines. So the polygrapher was apparently um, engaged by the Globe. Um, and we know that polygraphs are not admissible in a court of law. So, so I'm I would not just... So sure. Yeah, so 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 and another thing I want to bring back to these bruises and I thought this was interesting because again, you know, it, it it appears like fact and then there's these bold statements in this book, right? So on page uh what is it? 53 of the book, it says Dr. Thomas Noguchi told biographers Brown and Barham that bruises uh, not documented in official aut- that there were not uh, there were bruises not documented in official autopsy report. I did find evidence which indicated violence. There are bruises on her lower back area, a very fresh bruise, and bruises on her arms. Do we know that to be true? Because, you know, we just said that that she didn't have bruises, but you have Thomas Noguchi, supposedly with these biographers, saying that there were. Well, here's the thing with that. I actually was looking at that just last night, and I pulled out the Brown and uh, Barham book, and I read that quote in there. And then I, as usual, flipped to the back to the footnotes to see what the source of this quote is. And lo and behold, there's no source. There's no Thomas Noguchi said this to so-and-so on such-and-such a date or in such-and-such an interview. There's absolutely nothing to confirm whether he really said that or not. Yeah, and that that becomes the challenge in a book like this or any, you know, what I said at the top of the show, because it is assumed, because we all do, we th- these are authoritative figures, and, you know, supposedly you said this in a biography, and I'm all for it if he actually did say it, but let's find the source. So I think that's, uh, you know, it goes back to goes back to that. The other thing that I found interesting, too, in this book, um, and I didn't n- know this, and Mary Jane, this may be a question for you, um, is that... That uh, according to John Minor, he says that Monroe's kidneys were found them to be clear, that this could be an indication that the stomach had been bypassed. Is that true? I know you've just done so much in terms of uh, the documentation with the forensic pathologist. Well, number one, John Minor is a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's (laughs) he's not anybody who has any knowledge of forensics. (laughs) Um, The kidneys being clear... At the autopsy, all that means is there was no residue in them that was visible to the naked eye. That's why the samples were sent for microscopic determination. You're not going to necessarily see the kidneys being visibly congested. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so let's uh, let's let's move on in terms of this ambulance theory. Uh, does anybody want to add anything before I go to the next point? Should we talk no. about Ken Hunter? Uh, yes, sure. Let's talk about Ken Hunter. So uh, Ken Hunter was um, another ambulance driver for the Schaefer uh, company, and he testified in, in 1982 um, to Pat Carroll, the, the deputy district attorney. And um, he indicates that uh, he came very early in the morning with his partner. And I get very confused by the names of the different ambulance attendants because in, in some instances, I'm hearing James Hall also identify himself as Rick Stone when he first contacts Mike Carroll. And then I hear Ken Hunter, um, his uh, audio tape of, of his interview with the DA, and he talks about his partner being a man named Rick Stone, but that when they arrived at the house, Marilyn had um, already passed and they examined the body, and they immediately left because they knew it would be removed by the coroner. Interesting. And, and apparently well, he said that under oath as part of his um, testimony or deposition. 
Yeah, and then the, the thing is with him is the timeline doesn't work as well, which is a challenge. But I want to play this clip. Um, let's go to it because Walt Schaefer is the one that owned the ambulance company. And initially he came out and said that James Hall did not work for his company, if I'm hearing this correct, if I'm re, re, uh, you know, uh, reviewing this correctly. Uh, but, but then he then said, um, because, and I want to get to the proof, but I want to play the clip because it, Walt Schaefer goes on record saying that, indeed, they did take her to the hospital. Uh, Mike, can you uh, play that clip for us? We took Marilyn Monroe in on on an overdose. And, of course, she succumbed at the hospital. So what do you say to that? Walt Schaefer then goes on record. He is basically saying that she, indeed, was taken in his ambulance service. Who wants to address that one? Uh, Walt Schaefer actually recanted that statement later after uh, being questioned about it, and he admitted in a later interview that he flat-out lied about it. And why did he lie? He was very evasive as to why he lied. When he was asked, why did you create this story, at first he tried to say, like, um, well, I, I have a lot of celebrity clients and I have to protect them, and then when pressed further... He answered, well, it's Hollywood. Anyway, anything can happen. Yeah, that's just... Uh, it's that's... very, very odd. It's very strange. And he told Anthony Summers that he sent an invoice to Maryland's estate for the ambulance transportation. And I, I examined, uh, you know, the documentation of, of her assets and her debts. And I went through 70 creditors that are listed in the legal documents. And there's no ambulance service included. So let me read uh, from page 81. Walt Schaefer stated in 1985 interview that she was alive when she was picked up. And then he goes on to say that they took her on a code three, an emergency into Santa Monica Hospital, where she was terminated. Asked about Marilyn could possibly have brought back uh, to her home in Brentwood. Schaefer replied, anything can happen in Hollywood. Um, And then Murray, uh, you know, uh, Leibowitz, who was also um, working for Schaefer at the time, uh, Jay says that she interviewed, uh, that he interviewed his widow and Sylvia, and she stated that throughout the years, her husband told her that Marilyn Monroe was taken to the hospital and then returned home after she was dead. So it, it appears, I mean, I'm just saying, it's, it's, it, what do you guys think about this ambulance theory? It just seems very strange to me because on one hand you have people lying you have people saying that you know James Hall initially Walt Schaefer even denied that he he worked for the company and then supposedly there's records and there's a you know again in the book and Mary Jane or Leslie maybe or even Gary you guys know in terms of if that's true that there's a picture in the LA Times with um, James Hall working at the Schaefer, Schaefer Ambulance Service and I guess my question is let's just say he's lying. Everything that he's saying is a lie, right? He did it for the money. He needed to get his, you know, family fed, etc. And he's making it up. Why in the world, right after the fact, would Walt Schaefer anybody deny that he was working for the company? Anybody want to address that one? Because Walt Schaefer is running an ambulance company that serves celebrities. And when you have one of your employees going and selling the details of a celebrity death to the tabloids, that doesn't exactly reflect well on him. So I'm sure he was probably trying to distance himself from it. 
Got it. Got it. Yeah, that could be. That could be. But I so wasn't he like doing this before he went to sell the so right after he was basically telling people and he was denounced. Am I am I not reading that correctly? You know, in James terms of James Paul sold the story in nineteen eighty two. The interview with Walt Schaefer was in nineteen eighty five. So then prior to that, because it also says that he was talking about it right after and he was basically nobody was was uh, you know um, coming forward, especially um, you know his his partner. Um, so my question does anybody know what he was doing from sixty two to eighty two? Making up a story. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody. Okay, got it, got it, got it, got it. There's so that's absolutely uh, before the nineteen eighty two investigation, and you have to remember that was a really big deal. It was in the media. It was all over the place, and that's when people started coming out of the woodwork. Prior to that, there's no record of any of these ambulance drivers saying anything to anybody. There's people later saying, oh, yeah, they told me back then, but there's nothing on record. And you have to remember the, the media at the time, Marilyn Monroe's death was the biggest story. Why was an ambulance call not reported in the papers? No record of it. None of these uh, people... You know, there's people who will try and come out and say, oh, I, I was told I had to stay quiet about it or I was threatened. They never claimed that anywhere. They never said there was any reason for them to keep quiet for 20 years. Um, they even try and say, oh, yeah, I told everybody about this back then, so why is there no record of it when it happened? It just kind of strikes of opportunism to me. Interesting. Gary, did you, you wanted to make a comment as well? Well, it's a very provocative story that Hall makes. He, he claims that Marilyn is alive and that he, she's resuscitated, and then he finger points and um, accuses Ralph Greenson of killing her and, and, and breaking her ribs. And this all flies um, against the, the evidence of the, of the autopsy report. And then, you know, juxtaposed with that is Walt Schaefer, the ambulance company owner, who says that she's found alive and um, she's sent to a hospital um, where she expires. So, you know, the two versions of the story, um, they they don't even match with each other, and and none of them make sense, and none of them have any documentation. I, I think it would be quite unusual for someone to expire in a hospital and there not be a record and I've, I've never heard of a, an ambulance returning a deceased body back to the, to the, to the location of, of uh, where they were picked up. Yeah, that's illegal so, in California. It's illegal to transport a dead body in an ambulance. So, so, so it's also important to note that, in, sorry, that an EMT, unless there is advanced rigor mortis, unless there is extreme trauma to the body where the person can't possibly be alive, can't pronounce death. So they would have had to continue to the hospital where an MD would have to pronounce her dead. She would have to have been pronounced dead by a doctor at the hospital, and that would be on record. One of the more absurd claims is in Jay's book, Sylvia Lieb is quoted as saying um, that they took her to the hospital and a doctor signed the death certificate, said they couldn't leave her there and just take her back to the house. It's like, what? <laughs> and, what's, and what's really odd about that is she, she married him in 1967, long after, you know, Marilyn was gone. So, again, it's like second- and third-hand information from people who were not even involved with this case when it, when it went down. Well, and I think, again, you know, it goes back to this whole thing and it, the way that the book is written, written the way the information comes out there into the public. We assume that these things are, are true because all of a sudden you have – 
you know, uh, firsthand accounts through somebody's relative, or you have an authoritative figure like Jack Clemens, who is a police officer, or John Minor, who is a lawyer, etc. And we start to think, or to Thomas Noguchi, I mean, all these people that do do have some, again, possibly some truth in their story. But when you start looking at the facts of being able to, you know, send a body to, you know, Santa Monica's hospital, and then all of a sudden they were pronounced dead, it seems like that's a that's a really challenging cover-up, if that's going to be the cover-up, um, to allow all those things to happen in that vortex and not anything come out until 20 years later. And I think that's a very interesting, uh, you know, dilemma that we're in with this ambulance theory because it's certainly all over the place. We have to take a short break. We'll be back and we'll continue the conversation on the ambulance theory. You're listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Mad Genius Radio presents Marilyn. For those of us who can't get enough of Marilyn Monroe, especially her iconic musical performances, Mad Genius Radio has expertly curated a genre of hundreds of tracks performed by Marilyn and friends. It is the quintessential collection of music for a journey of glamour, grace, and allure. Listen for free only on Mad Genius Radio. Available in the App Store, Google Play, and desktop at madgeniusradio.com. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Goodnight Maryland Radio. Help us explore the mystery that is and was Marilyn Monroe. Call into our program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to MarilynLiveTalk at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Goodnight Marilyn Radio. Oh boy! If, if we could just tape some of these conversations uh, while we're in the, the in the commercial break, because there's a lot of things that we want to bring up here, and hopefully we'll get to all of them in this ambulance theory. Leslie, um, let's let's talk a little bit about um, you know we've talked about uh, James Hall. He goes, he arrives at the house, he finds that you know Marilyn is uh, you know in uh, you know pretty much comatose and that she's OD'd. He's resuscitating her. Um, you know they've got her on the floor and this ventilator, et cetera. And then Greenson comes in and basically starts massaging her heart and says, you know, he's going to then inject something in her ribs under her heart and uh, basically pronounces her dead. Okay. Um, but the real question is, is for most people that don't know a lot about this theory is why in the world would Greenson be in there? What is James Hall's uh, theory of why Greenson was there? Uh, well, he believes that Greenson murdered her, that he was sent in when uh, it appeared that she was going to make it uh, on behalf of the Kennedys to kill her. 
And theoretically, if you're an ambulance attendant, you're trying to save someone's life. You see a doctor coming in with a needle to the heart, you're thinking adrenaline. Um, but James Hall believes he injected her with an ambutal, and he believes this based on the color of the liquid in the vial, um, something that he remembers when he's under hypnosis, um, that it was a brown liquid, and he believes that it was not the correct color to have been adrenaline and was therefore nambutal, and that it was intentionally injected into her heart to end her life and that she immediately died when that happened. So that's, that's James Hall's version, and he believes that Greenson was working with the Kennedys. Um, it's also important to note that Hall will also state that other people were there when all of this was happening, Peter Lawford being one of them. He also claims that um, Sergeant Iannone was also there, and that he was involved in the cover-up, and that these were all the people who helped um, set up the scene and move Marilyn's body to the bedroom. So you've got an incredible number of players in Hall's account, none of which have ever corroborated it. Well, and also on page 49, countering Hall's recollection, a remarkable defense of Pat Newcomb, who's also being accused of being there, told biographer right. Donald Spoto. Yeah. Yep. Whoever the writer and who said this, I leaned over the body screaming, she's dead, she's dead. I never saw a body. So that is taking, I don't know what he's talking about, this, this ambulance driver. How can he say he saw me? I never saw an ambulance. If so, this is this is where he he goes into into you know trying to defend this this comment. If so, then what what about Norman Jeffries' statements earlier in the book asserting that Mrs. Murray called for an ambulance shortly before Newcomb arrived at the scene? Gary, do you want to talk about that? Because I know you talk a lot about Norman Jeffries too. Um. Well, I don't know many details of his theory it seems so out, outlandish uh, at the time um and and he was um in a very debilitated state what i do know about the recordings of his interview is is that he wanted to make these statements to donald wolf off tape so anything that donald wolf um published in his book the assassination of marilyn monroe which supposedly came from norman jeffries is not on audio tape, and I and I have uh, heard a tape played by Anthony Summers, which has Norman Jeffries kind of mumbling. It's completely inaudible. But then he asked for the tape to be turned off so that he could tell whatever this story was. So there's there's really no way to trace down this source. So I, I have to dismiss it just based upon the fact that it's just unsubstantiated on so many levels. And I just want to point out that Newcomb consistently claimed that she didn't learn about Marilyn's death until 4 a.m. the next morning, courtesy of a phone call from the actress's attorney, Mickey Rudin. Uh, Mary Jane, you wanted to talk a little bit about timeline, right? Yeah. um, Paul contradicts himself a few times. Um, and, And the statements he says as far as the timeline show that there's no way he was there when he claims he was. In his 19... 82 interview with the assistant DA, he's asked, uh, what was the time to the best of your knowledge? And Hall answers, I'm going to say between four and six in the morning. Um, then he says in an interview with Michelle Morgan for her excellent book, and just a side note, she did not use his interview in her book because she didn't find it credible. He said, outside the house was the first call core from the mortuary, and I thought, what the hell are they doing here because Marilyn was pronounced dead only minutes before. Well, we know what time the car from the mortuary came, and that was around 5 in the morning. So what is Hall saying here, that he was there all night long, 
that he, you know, was there from four until the mortuary showed up at five, which would have had every police officer on the scene and every person on the scene seeing him, but none of them mention him. Not one. No one mentions James Hall being there. On top of that, with his story that when he arrived, she was alive, and that, you know, when the mortuary car came, she'd only been pronounced dead a few moments before, well, this is 4 or 5 in the morning. We know she died between 8 and 10 the night before. She was long dead by that point. So, again, what he says does not fit with the known facts at all. Well, and I think that's the the interesting aspect of this case when you start to really break it down. When you read it, 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 you go, oh, okay, I can follow this theory. I follow the theory. But you start poking holes at it. And we did this when we were first looking at this case is, you know, putting it out in a visual form, right? Because it does. You have all these different players coming in and out. But when you look at it as a timeline, then you really do start to see the holes that this could not, this version of this theory could not be based on fact. Gary, you wanted to add something that I think was kind of interesting, a little sidebar. Yeah, this is a little off topic, but it's just about sources. And, you know, in, in, in writing the book Icon, I examined these sources and tried to, you know, trace them as leads. And I did have an issue with the Bar, the Barham and Brown book. And I'll just give you a little example uh, of how sometimes theories and books just fall apart. Um, uh, that combination, Barnum and Brown, they, they apparently interviewed a gentleman by the name of Mickey Song, who claims to have styled Marilyn's hair during the JFK birthday bout gala. And there's a story in the book about um, Song witnessing an interaction between Robert Kennedy and Marilyn before that event at Madison Square Garden. And when I interviewed Mickey Song in 1998, uh, a few years after that book was written, I asked him specifically about that interaction, and he denied it completely to me. He said that, that at no point in the early part of that evening did Marilyn have any uh, contact with the Kennedys backstage. He denied it. But yet he told me his own version of, of that evening where he's styling Marilyn's hair. And ultimately, I couldn't even use... Mickey Song as um, a source, because then I found the uh, receipt from Kenneth Battelle, who actually did Marilyn's hair that evening, and there's photographs of Marilyn actually leaving her apartment with her hair already done. So you can see how convoluted this becomes when you try to trace something to a book, thinking that it's that it's factual or at least based on an interview, and then you go to that source and, and they deny it, but then they prove to you that they're not even a valid source. Well, I think you're bringing up a very good point, and most people, you know, when they get the little, you know, bite-sized uh, clips in the media or they'll look at a documentary or they'll look at a, you know, read a book, right, like this one, and it appears like, you know, you can follow along. In, in some ways, I look at this and I say this is, you know, the murder of Marilyn Monroe, to me, it's a feature film. It's an entertainment feature. I mean, it's not, I'm not saying that there isn't parts of it that he's saying that are accurate. I don't. I don't want to accuse this this gentleman of being a complete, uh, you know, falsehood. But when you start making those type of claims that the case is closed, right, and then you go back and you start looking at these facts um, and find out that, or, or checking the facts, and you find out that they. You know, where are the sources? Where are these? And you find out that you can't find them. I really think then you you got to stay in this is my theory versus this is a fact. But then again, maybe it doesn't sell books. So, um, so, so you know, I think this is an important aspect of this case. You know, there is um, 
an interesting point I also want to bring up, and it, it talks about Mary, not um, Mary Jane, but uh, Jane Mansfield's press secretary. Uh, what is it? Straight? Is it straight? Uh, my, I forget what his first name is. He supposedly is collaborating on this on this theory. Does anybody know about him and how credible he is as well? I've heard from. Um, I, I don't know too much about him, but I have heard from Jane Mansfield fans that they don't find him reliable. I don't know the details of why, but I've seen numerous time. Um, Jane Mansfield fans saying that he's not credible. Okay. So I don't know why somebody who was working for Jane Mansfield would have anything to say about Marilyn anyway, but um, I know the, the Jane fans don't care for him. So then there's also the neighbors that also claim, is it Charles Abe Lando and Ruby Lando that claim that they saw an ambulance arrive at the home around midnight, which is, you know, if you think about it, then that seems a little bit too late too. Anybody know about that? Yeah, there's a story from the Landau's who had been out that evening and uh, initially claimed they saw the ambulance around 1 in the morning, then claimed they saw the ambulance around midnight. Uh, Again, we've talked about this before. It's possible that during all of the commotion that an ambulance arrived and left because she was already dead. Of all the ambulance theories, I find that one the most credible. Um, As far as the timing goes of when they saw it, I think you have to look back again to 1962 where we don't have our cell phones, we don't have our digital clocks, we don't have time all around us to know what time it is. If they saw something in the middle of the night, it's very possible they mistook, first of all, what they saw, and second of all, what time it was. Interesting. The other thing that I think is is uh, a wild comment, we've heard this from time to time, and, and Gary, I think you've addressed this, you know, because uh, in the documentary, Say Goodbye to the President, um, you know, he, again, you know, there's a point of view into it, so you don't know where the sources are. So somebody is, ta- you know, saying something and it's out of context, but it's a telephone conversation, supposedly Ralph Greenson, in which the, she, the doctor discusses only what he said could that he could about Marilyn's last night. Oddly, this is what Jay says, oddly, two years after her death, he was still deferring all inquiries to the attorney general. I can't explain myself or defend myself without revealing things that I don't want to reveal. I feel I can't, you know, you have to draw the line and say, well, I'll tell you the tell you this, but I won't tell you that. It's a terrible position to be in to have to say I can't talk about it because I can't tell the whole story. Listen, you know, just talk to Bobby Kennedy. That's an that's that's supposedly the quote. Why do you think he said that? Some people say that he's deflecting his own guilt in his, uh, you know, taking the heat off him. Anybody want to address that? I have a theory about that one. Okay. And I think it might be um, related to editing. The whole first part of that statement seems to me that he's protecting his patient's confidentiality. I just wonder if. Um, the person who's interviewing him then asked a question and said, well, what can you tell us about Robert Kennedy's involvement with Marilyn? And then his response is, well, you're going to have to talk to Robert Kennedy. But yet the question is deleted. And I, and I see in multiple documentaries how that technique is used with yeah. a voiceover or with editing. You know, the, the statement is on audio tape. It's, it's not um, anything that's filmed where you can see a break Got so it. it becomes very suspicious, and I, and I think oftentimes um, the material is edited to prove a point. All right. That's a great note 
to end on. Remember that when you are reading or looking at any documentary that's out there about Marilyn Monroe, uh, look at where the sources are. Don't just because somebody is saying it doesn't necessarily mean that it's true. We unfortunately have come to the end of our show. I can't even get the final uh, final thoughts from our, our panel today. We'll pick it up and recap uh, next week's show uh, with any closing thoughts from this one. We are getting ready for a wonderful celebration of Marilyn's life on August 4th at the Formosa Cafe. We will continue the conversation next Friday, same time, same place. Love for you to join the conversation. Call in with your questions and comments. Until then, I'm Nina Bosky for Goodnight Marilyn Radio, and remember, never stop dreaming. Thank you for joining us for today's show. Good Night Maryland Radio with Nina Bosky can be heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be sure to tune in again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.